0: Cage, 3650, Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Thursday, October 14th, 2010, Neuromuscular Force Production, 2. All right, when we finished class last time, we were talking about the way in which whole muscles are able to change the amount of force they produce, okay? And they change the amount of force they produce uh, based on what the required activity is. There's a very specific arrangement of how our muscles are arranged in terms of the innervation and the number of fibers and what were those specific arrangements called? Motor Motor units. Okay, and what's the definition of a motor unit? Uh, uh, You already answered, so somebody else. (laughs) You already got your A for the day. A motor neuron and all of the fibers that it innervates. Okay? So somebody else tell me something about characteristics of motor units then. All or nothing. All or nothing. The whole motor unit, just like the individual muscle cells, is going to be all or nothing, right? What else? Passive. Pardon? Passive. Passive? Not a voluntary. Okay. Well, they're voluntary from the sense that if you... Create uh, an action potential and send it, you can voluntarily uh, recruit that motor unit. Okay? What else? Somebody said something. What about muscle fiber type? Fast or slow or intermediate, they're all going to be the same type within that motor unit, right? Okay? So, in order to change the amount of force that we produce with a given muscle, then we have a variety of different ways or things that we can do as we recruit those motor units. So what were the three things that we did to, ch- to recruit motor units to change force? Synchronized. Pardon? Synchronized. We synchronize so that the motor units that we want to recruit together, we recruit them at exactly the same moment so that the, all those myosin heads attach, produce force, or all those... Um, individual muscle cells produce all of their force at the same time as the others, okay? So that we get this synchronized effect. What were the other two? Faster. Pardon? Go faster. Th- they go faster. We re- we recruit motor units at a faster rate. And then what was the other one? Number. Number. More motor units, okay? So, and um, this neurological training, that's our... Uh, our motor learning, where we practice a certain activity or movement or skill, and our, our nervous system learns or adapts to learn how to recruit those motor units in a more synchronized fashion so that the movement itself becomes not only more precise, but we can produce more force, more maximum force. Okay, now, so now to talk about some specific uh, recruitment patterns beyond that if we have high precision but low force movements, we're going to recruit motor units that have lots of muscle fibers per nerve or not so many muscle fibers per nerve? Precise movements, low force. Lots of muscle fibers per nerve or not so many? Not so many. Okay, so in this case, when we, we, we're going to recruit these uh, small number of fibers per nerve motor units. Okay, when, we, when we've got small precise movements that we need to do with a particular muscle or activity, then we're going to send signals to recruit these smaller motor units that have a fewer number of muscle fibers per nerve. Uh, which slide are you looking at? Uh, you have it. I just have it changed it a little bit so I can write on it up here. Okay? So you have this one. I've just reworded it slightly. Um, in fact, it probably the slide should probably say motor MU recruitment patterns, I think. Does it? Yeah. Okay. All right. So then, conversely, if we've got high-force movements or activities that don't require so much precision, then we can do uh, we can recruit motor units that have those higher or increased number of uh, fibers per nerve. Okay. So now we gave some examples of muscles in different locations in the body. Extraocular muscles down to medial gastrocnemias. But also within a given muscle, you may have different size motor units. Okay? So there are some muscles that you can use for fine precision control but also for more high force and so you can change the size of the motor units that you recruit. Now, when you're starting out with an activity, uh, we talked about picking up objects uh, of, of uh, varying weights. Okay, so when you start out with an activity, as you start lifting this device uh, or this object, if it's a fairly light object, and then you start lifting an ob- objects of greater weight, so you require more force. The way the muscle adapts initially when you're going from low force. To higher force, is that we increase the amount of force we produce by increasing the number of motor units that we recruit. Okay, So, the, the typical way as we're, we're increasing our force production requirements from low to higher force, we simply just add on more motor units. The brain tells more motor units in that muscle to. Uh, produce force by sending action potentials to more and more and more motor units. Once we are already at high force, you're already lifting something pretty heavy and you're trying to lift something even heavier, we've already got a large number of motor units engaged and so what we do is we then increase the rate of recruitment of those motor units. Okay, So with the pattern We start off by increasing number of motor units and then we increase rate of recruitment. Let's see if I've got that on here, where was it, okay, All right. and so that's where we start to take advantage of this summation that we looked at briefly last time. These are those individual muscle twitches, okay, where you do a muscle twitch and then get the relaxation you do a muscle twitch and then you get the relaxation but what happens when you get the action potential that hits that muscle cell closer in time you get the force production and then as it starts to relax you hit it with another action potential here and so you get the force sums you know it starts from here instead of down here and as it starts to relax if you hit it with an action potential again It goes higher and higher until you eventually reach a higher level of force production. Okay? So that's where rate of recruitment helps you is this summation, and it's referred to as temporal. And temporal refers to time. Okay? Because it doesn't help you if the action potentials come too far apart in time. Because you get individual muscle twitches. If they come closer together in time, you can build on each subsequent muscle twitch and produce more force. Okay, so that's rate of recruitment of motor units. Okay. Now, um, there's another factor that influences our recruitment of muscle cells, and it's often referred to as the size principle. And in this case, it's not so much the size of the muscle cell or the size of the motor unit, but it really has to do with the size of the alpha motor neuron. Okay, so size is really referring to the alpha motor neuron diameter. And as we've talked about before, small Diameter alpha motor neurons have a slower conduction velocity. But one of the things we haven't mentioned so much uh, uh, to date is that they also have a lower threshold for recruitment. Okay, That their activation threshold, in other words, the action potential doesn't need to be at the same strength to cause those muscle cells to respond. So it has a lower threshold for activation. These fast twitch motor units, large alpha motor neurons, faster conduction velocity, but they actually have a higher threshold for activation. Now this makes sense because if you're doing a relatively low force activity like walking back and forth like this, um, what muscle fiber types would you prefer to be using? Slow. Slow. Why would you want to use slow twitch? Do you have to produce a lot of force? Do you have to produce it very quickly? Would you prefer to be able to do this for a long time and not get fatigued? (laughs) Okay. So you would prefer to recruit slow twitch fibers for low force endurance type activities. So these types of motor units have a low uh, activation threshold. It's easier to recruit uh, low low-force, slow-twitch motor units, okay? So when you're doing low-force activities, you tend to recruit those motor units first, the slow-twitch. As the force production requirements go up, as you start walking faster, and then jogging, and then running, and then sprinting, you get to the point where you start to then exceed the activation threshold for these fast-twitch motor units, and then you start to recruit them, okay? So we tend to follow this somewhat orderly pattern where we start off recruiting type 1s which are our slow twitch. As force goes up, as force goes up, we then start to recruit more of the type 2As, our intermediate fibers, and as force continues to go up, all right, we go from walking to running to sprinting, then we start to recruit our more pure fast twitch fibers, okay? So they're recruited in response to what the force requirement uh, is. Now, as you start off walking and then you pick it up to a jog and then start running faster and then sprinting, you get this nice orderly pattern of recruitment. Slow twitch, intermediate, fast twitch. Okay, There are examples, and sports, a lot of different sporting activities are good examples. If you go from a relatively motionless uh Uh, position, to all of a sudden doing something very powerful, like a powerful vertical leap, do you have time to recruit slow-twitch and then intermediate and then fast-twitch? No. No. So you can jump over this orderly pattern if you're doing explosive, powerful-type activities. And we go mostly to going straight to fast-twitch. Okay? So, this is the typical pattern. So this is typical typical pattern of recruitment but there are some exceptions alright there are some exceptions one would be powerful or power movements what, what might be another exception where we'd start using fast twitch under circumstances that you would think you would normally use mostly slow twitch what, what other examples might you think of Sprinting and power. Is it? Yeah, I'm yeah I'm thinking sprinting is power. Okay. What about uh, changing direction? My um, slide is power too? Yeah, I would think so because basically what you have to do if you've got your body's momentum moving in one direction and you have to stop the momentum in that direction and and move it to another direction that's going to require is that going to be low force or high force? Right. It's probably going to be high force. Okay. So you're probably going to use fast twitch. When, when would a marathoner, when would a marathoner use fast twitch muscle fibers I- if they do? At the very end of the okay, uh, well, why at the very end? <coughs> okay, maybe it's a very competitive marathon, and at the very end they may they may be in a sprint to the finish. Okay, so that might be one example. When, when else? Up a hill. Could be up a hill. All right, you get a fairly, fairly steep hill during a race like that. You know, it might be a tactical surge during a a, a point in the race, but there's also another uh, example and that is, okay, you're probably primarily going to be using slow twitch muscle fibers during endurance type activities when you're running. What happens if you're running 20 miles or 26 miles? Do you think those slow twitch muscle fibers that are primarily being used are going to fatigue? At some point? Yes. And in fact, what will happen is as those slow twitch fibers start to fatigue, and we can see this with uh, studies where you, you can look at glycogen utilization in, in muscle fiber types. And typically what you see in marathons, as an example, is the slow twitch muscle fibers tend to get depleted of glycogen first. And as those start to get depleted, and fatigue, then you start to call upon those fast-twitch fibers to help out to try to maintain that running pace. Well, eventually they're going to be fatigued as well, um, but that is another exception or example where we might violate this typical recruitment pattern. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. so typically one 2A, 2B in an orderly pattern, but we've got some exceptions or uh, examples of exceptions to that. Okay, now, uh, this, this sort of starts a section, what, what we've talked about so far are some things uh, within the muscle that influence how much force that muscle produces. So this sort of starts a section where we're going to look at some factors or some characteristics that might influence further how the muscle produces force. Okay? and one of those things is the speed at which we are asked to produce the force okay? so this is the velocity or the speed at which we are being asked to produce force now lem- let me explain it in, in one way and the way that we typically study it and then try to bring it back to some real life examples because the way we study it is actually backwards of the way that it really works uh, and in fact, it's kind of backwards on this graph. So what we're going to do down here is what we do with a device like this KINCOM, this isokinetic dynamometer, is we, we can set up this device so that you can do a, uh, an exercise like a knee extension or some other type of exercise, and you can set the movement velocity. So no matter how much force the person exerts, that, that movement arm is not going to go any, any faster. Okay, So we control the velocity. And so what you do is you set it at very low velocities, like 30 degrees per second, and then you gradually increase velocity. And what the device does is, as the person, you tell them to try to push that bar out with their leg as fast as they can, and as hard and as powerful as they can, and what we can do is measure the amount of force that they can produce at these different velocities. And you get a curve that looks like this. So what that tells us is, when is, when is the force the highest? When velocity is the lowest. lowest. And in fact, you typically get the highest Force measurements when velocity is zero. What what kind? What do we call that kind of muscle action? Isometric. isometric. Okay. So you can produce high forces with isometric muscle actions. As movement velocity gets faster and faster and faster, we can produce less and less and less force. Okay. Yes. I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. So. Say somebody's working out and mm-hmm. you know, they're doing like dumbbell curls or whatever. Um, would you recommend just getting like a 45-pound plate, for example, mm-hmm. just holding it directly in front of you for maybe like 30 seconds as opposed to dumbbell curls? It depends. It, it depends on what their goal is for their strength training. Okay? okay? Um, if they're involved in a particular sport or activity that requires some degree of isometric Uh, uh, activity that might be the most effective Mm -hmm. but if they're involved in a sport or they're just doing general fitness the 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 advantage is you can potentially produce more force isometrically Mm -hmm. but the disadvantage is you produce that force at uh, uh, you at that that arm angle okay Uh, and so that's why at least generally for most sports activities that require a more full range of motion or for general fitness, you want some kind of activity that uses the full range of motion of that of that exercise. Okay, so I mean I, I can see there might be some examples. Um, I'm just thinking right off the top of my head. Maybe somebody, for example, that's a cyclist that that is in a, an aerodynamic position. That's that's their upper body is largely isometric it might make more sense for them to do some isometric type of exercise as well as you know, full range of motion because they're in that kind of locked position for long periods of time, so that might make sense. Okay? But it's really, it would be really specific to what their, their goal and their, their task or their sport is. Okay? Alright, why? How come when we're asked to move faster and faster and faster we can't produce as much force? And and this is the way we study it in the lab because we have devices that we can use to limit the speed or control the speed of movement, and then we can measure the amount of force produced. The way we look at it in real life is um, opposite. Take somebody throwing a baseball and throwing a shot put. Okay? Uh, In which one is the force requirement higher? The shot put. If you watch them throw these two devices in, which one is the movement velocity faster? The baseball. baseball, Okay? So, the the way it really happens in real life is opposite of how we study it, but the principle is still the same. So when the force requirement is, or when the, the velocity requirement is low, we can produce lots of force, but when we're asked to move faster and faster and faster and faster, we cannot produce as much force. Why is that? It has to do with the Chevette. (laughs) Among its other endearing features, the the car that I had when I was in grad school uh, would fail to start on a regular basis. I'd I'd go to class and work in the lab all day and I'd come out of the uh, Larkins Hall at Ohio State and it would be winter time and, you know, 10 feet of snow on the ground and, you know, all that stuff. And I'd go out to my car, wouldn't start. Uh, Fortunately, it was a manual shift. So those of you who know how to drive a manual shift, what could you do with it? You you could push start it. So fortunately, there was a hill outside of the lab at Ohio State. Okay? And so I would go back inside, and I would recruit whatever willing uh, classmates I could find to come out and help me get this car Started, and I and I figured once you got it going and got it rolling down the hill, you could get up enough speed. And again, those of you who have driven a stick shift or a manual shift know you can turn the ignition on, put it in gear, keep the clutch in, and as long as you get going fast enough, you know the engine's turning over. You can pop the clutch, and it'll it'll start. Okay, so uh, so anyway, I I I go in and recruit a couple of people to come out and help me uh, get this car started. So they would they would. uh, (laughs) sit here at the back of the vehicle I'd have two people and they'd get on the back of the vehicle and start pushing okay and when the car was stopped or when it was just getting started going if both of them were in contact with the back bumper they could both push on the car and so you could get the advantage of both people pushing to get the car rolling Okay. so then the car gets going and then it starts down the hill, and the the faster it's going, I have either a you know a better friend that's more motivated, that uh, is running fast enough to keep up to to maintain contact with the back bumper so he could keep pushing, and then I have not such a good friend over here that has just figured it's gotten rolling. You know he's kind of dogging it, uh, so. Is, is this guy right here helping with the force production of getting the car rolling? No, no because he's not doing what? He's not in contact, not in contact with it. He's not running fast enough, right? All right, so think about muscles. If the movement velocity gets so fast, what is it about muscles that then would make them not to be able to produce as much force? Pardon? Can't keep up? Yeah. There's something in a muscle that or some things in a muscle that might not be able to keep up. And what would those be? If if the movement velocity is fast. Okay? When movement velocity is high, fast switch fibers produce lots of force and they also produce it fast, quickly. Okay? So when movement velocities are high, fast twitch fibers can produce force fast enough to contribute to the overall muscle's force production. You might be recruiting the slow twitch fibers, but you can get to a movement velocity where they can't produce force fast enough to help out. Okay? And in fact, if this is our curve, let's go back to our curve. If this is a person that is, say, 70% slow twitch and 30% fast twitch, okay, so that's this curve right here, what would the force velocity curve look like for somebody who was, say, uh, 40% slow twitch and 60% fast twitch? So you almost reverse them. Steeper. How do you mean steeper? <coughs> Never mind. <man>. Never mind. <laughs> Ooh, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah. It would what? Say that again. It'll flip. It would flip. <laughs> like in the beginning and increase. Uh, well, if somebody, if you take two people and they're otherwise the same, and somebody's got a higher percentage of fast twitch than another person, initially, how much, are they going to be able to produce more force or less force? Yeah. More. More. So initially, their force is probably going to be up here, right? And as the movement velocity gets faster and faster and faster, at any given fast velocity, are they going to be able to produce more force or less force than the slow twitch person? More force, okay? So their curve is going to go like this, okay? So this is like a person that's more fast twitch, fast twitch, and this is a person that would be more slow twitch, Produces more force at the beginning, but when the velocity is faster, there's a, even a bigger difference. Okay, does that make sense? And who is better at throwing a uh, uh, producing the force to throw a heavy object like a shot put? Somebody that's predominantly fast twitch or predominantly slow twitch? Fast twitch. Okay. Because they want to produce lots of force very quickly. Okay? So you can try to toss that object as far as possible. Okay? You look like you have a question. No? Okay. Alright, so does that make sense? So, one of the things that may influence how much force a muscle produces is the velocity at which we're asking that that muscle to move. Or or the force that we're uh, uh, asking it to produce. Okay? So that's the force velocity... Uh, relationship. Okay. Another relationship. This is sometimes, uh, or probably most commonly referred to as the length tension, um, but to keep our terminology consistent, uh, I'll I'll call it the the force-length curve or relationship. Alright. So down here, what we've got is sarcomere length. They can, they can do experiments where they take muscle cells, individual muscle cells or individual muscle fibers, and they can uh, anchor each end of it, and uh, by pulling it apart or pushing it closer together, they can manipulate the sarcomere length. Okay? And then they stimulate these things and look at how much force is produced. So over here we've got tension or force over here. Now, if you notice, it's this, it's this uh, uh, in, in, like bell-shaped curve where there's a range in here where the force produces the highest. If the sarcomere is lengthened too far, the force falls off. If the sarcomere is shortened too much, this way, the force falls off. Okay? The, so there's this optimal... Optimal length or optimal overlap. And if you think about the architecture of these um, sarcomeres, it makes sense. So here's our myosins in the middle. Here's our actins out here. And these little things are those globular uh, myosin heads. So if you pull these this sarcomere too far apart, the myosin heads can't attached to the actins and form cross bridges, okay? So basically they're sitting there, they have nothing to attach to. Uh, they, you can stimulate this muscle and in, in, in the myosin heads are just waving in the air like this. Okay? They, don't, they, they can't produce force if they can't bind to the actin binding sites. So the amount of force drops off. In this case, going in this direction, if these actins overlap each other too much, they block some of the binding sites and once again you can't make as many cross bridges. You can't make as many cross bridges, the amount of force you can produce uh, drops off. Well, as it turns out, uh, these studies are often done in two different ways either what are called skinned fibers or intact muscles. Okay? What I just showed you with the sarcomere length are typically done with skinned muscle fibers. That is, they take a little piece of muscle out of an animal like a lab rat, and they essentially chemically digest all of the stuff off from around the muscle cell. And so what you literally have is the contractile unit, the the sarcomere. And so when you do that, uh, the muscle cell will produce its maximum force when it's at its normal resting length. Okay. Normal rest. Now, muscle cells are elastic, right? So that means if you stretch them and let go of them, they'll do what? Return to this normal resting length. Okay. So muscle cells have this this normal preferred length, and so if you do this kinds of studies with these skinned fibers, this experimental type setup, it should, should be resting. Okay. What that tells us is you get maximum force production from this muscle cell when it's at its normal resting length. You stimulate it, boom, great highest force. You stretch it out too much, force falls off. You cram it together too much, force falls off. Normal resting length, maximum force. Okay. But we know muscles don't exist like that in in people's muscles. And, in fact, when you do this in uh, experiments where the muscle is in uh, in its normal position, normal location, it is intact, you find out that if you stretch the muscle 20 to 30 percent immediately before you stimulate it to produce force, you actually get the highest force. Let me say that again. If you take an intact muscle, and you stretch it 20 or 30 percent, right before you tell it to contract, you actually get greater force production. Okay? It also helps if the stretch that's applied is fairly rapid. Now, um, I've mentioned my kids in here a few times before, and the, this is my youngest son, he, he's a pretty decent little athlete, and in fact, I'm, I'm thinking he's going to be a uh, 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 great athlete because he's got about a six-foot vertical leap. What? Mm-hmm. I have video evidence. He's got a <laughs> like six-foot vertical leap. You lie. I don't lie. I'll bet you. How much money you got on you? I got both plastic cards <laughs> and three dollars. <laughs> I'll take the three bucks. I don't want the cards. I, I don't. Okay. All right, so my son has a six-foot vertical leap. No, at the bottom of his feet. Really? You want to see it? See, this guy right here is probably five, ten, six feet. Look at the bottom of his feet. He gets to six feet, right? come on, cough up the three bucks alright and at that, time, at that time he's I'll have to stop him here okay oh I got him at the top, perfect look at that, look at that you know at the time he was probably six or seven how is it that at six or seven he's got a six foot vertical leap did he have some help? Yeah. What kind of help did he have? He he's got a trampoline down here, and he's got bungee cords. Okay. Uh, what do your muscles have in terms of inherent uh, 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 properties? Elasticity. Elasticity, Elasticity means when if you deform them, I, I, as in stretching them, and then you remove that force, what does it want do? to do? Go back to its normal position. Okay, Muscle tissue itself has elastic properties. What about the connective tissue, that fascia that covers the muscle? Elastic? Elastic properties? What about the tendons that connect muscles to bones? Elastic? Okay. So, if you stretch a muscle right before you ask it to produce force, you essentially get some elastic help in the subsequent force production, right? So and in fact, when, uh, so this is kind of an extreme example, but in a real example, if I want to jump in this direction, a vertical jump, which direction do I move first? Down, Down. Down okay, and that wouldn't seem to make sense, but all right, if I'm gonna do a vertical leap, what, what muscles am I primarily using? Quads, Quads calves, glutes, right? Okay, so if I move down in this type of position, I get knee flexion, which makes my quads do what? In terms of length. They stretch, right? I also get dorsiflexion, which causes my calf muscles to do what? Stretch. I get hip flexion, which makes my glutes do what? Stretch. Okay, so then if I send a signal to my, from my brain to those muscles to then contract, If I have stretched them, then I get this elastic help that helps you produce force. Okay? Um, Now, it's not just a matter of stretching the muscles. It's also a matter of applying that stretch relatively quickly. Because if I want to do this vertical leap, do I do this first? And then jump? No. No. What do you do? You go quick. You go down quick, and then up the other direction. So, what does the quickness have to do with it? What does the speed of stretch? What's that all about? What does that have to do with the whole this whole process? Momentum. Pardon? the momentum. Uh, uh, When you're moving downward, though, your momentum's going this way, and so it, it it seems a little counterintuitive because your momentum's going this way so you have to stop that momentum and you've got to turn it around and get it going that way. It It does have to do with recruitment and pardon? You could potentially get a greater stretch but you don't want to go past about 20 or 30 percent okay? because if you stretch too far then you actually see force production decline. You have to do with It doesn't necessarily have to do with summation but it has to do with some feedback that the muscle will give the central uh, the central nervous system and then the central nervous system sends signal to the muscle uh it is proprioception it's particular type of proprioceptors called oops oh stop uh, back here and You have these little specialized muscle cells in your muscles called muscle spindles. Okay? We'll talk about them a little bit more in a minute, but they are sensitive to stretch. And they will trigger a neuromuscular reflex where the the muscles that are stretched are the neuromuscular reflex is to tell those muscles to contract. Okay? In fact, let me just... Let me go ahead and jump to those now. Um, If we go on forward to here. These are the muscle spindles in here. Okay? They are sensitive to stretch. There are two main areas. Okay? Two main areas or regions of these muscle spindles. Uh, I'm going to do the... Secondary region first, it's often referred to as this flower spray ending, but here's the thing about the secondary region, it is sensitive to absolute stretch or absolute length of the muscle, okay? So, essentially they're constantly active and they will send signals back to the central nervous system telling the, the brain that the muscle is at X length, it's at Y length it's at z length okay so whatever the whatever the absolute length of the muscle then that's the signal that, that's uh, sent back to the central nervous system this primary area this primary area is sensitive to change in length okay so stretching the muscle will will evoke this reflex to a certain degree but changing the length of the muscle rapidly evokes the ref- reflex even more rapidly. Okay? So if you're, and let's, let's um, relate this to stretching. If I want to stretch my hamstrings, what's, what's the, uh, uh, um, one of the things we've kind of hit people with for a long time, and, and actually things are changing a little bit, is this idea of, of static stretching. You know, don't do ballistic stretching where you're doing it real vigorously. So if I want to stretch my hamstrings, that's, you know, putting, uh, the hamstring on stretch, and so as I lean forward, the more I lean forward and stretch this muscle, what is it doing? In terms of this neuromuscular reflex. It's getting a signal back to the spine, back to this muscle to contract. If I'm trying to stretch the muscle, why is it getting a signal to contract? Prevent you from overstretching. Okay? Prevent from overstretching. So if you stretch it more quickly okay quickly that neuromuscular reflex happens more rapidly okay if you go to the doctor's office and they want to check your reflexes what do they do they have you sit on the edge of the exam table and they take that little rubber hammer and they whack you in the patellar tendon right okay and so what that does All right, here's the patellar tendon right here. It's attached to the patella, and it's our four quadricep muscles are attached to the patella, okay? When you hit the patellar tendon rapidly, it pushes it in like this, which pulls on the patella, and so that gives a very small, but very rapid stretch to the quadricep muscles, okay? So what this does is this: these muscle spindles send a signal back to the central nervous system, and that sends a signal right back to those quadricep muscles to do what? Contract, Contract, and what happens to your leg? Okay, you get that knee extension, right? Doctor, hit your patellar tendon, and you get the knee extension, okay? So we're sort of doing the same thing with exercise in that what we're doing is we're trying to rapidly stretch by moving down quickly and then telling those muscles to produce force, so we get two things. We get the elasticity, and we get the stretch reflex that helps us produce more force. Okay? Let's see if that'll... Oh, where's my... okay, these are what are referred to as plyometric, yep, do it again, I keep forgetting to... okay, these are plyometric type exercises, okay, and why do we do plyometric type exercises like this? What are they supposed to help with? Pardon? Power. Developing more strength and speed and power. Okay? So we can do a count, you know, he's doing a vertical jump. So we can do a vertical jump just by standing and moving down into this counter movement and then jumping quickly. Okay? So what is it about what he's doing that's helping this process? Jumping back up. Pardon? Yeah, but what it, why why is he stepping off this box before he then does the jump? Stretch. Faster stretch, okay? Because you know he's accelerating towards the ground. When he hits the ground, it moves him down into that counter movement more rapidly and forcefully. Evokes a stronger stretch reflex, and so with the stretch reflex and the elasticity, we get greater force production in the subsequent jump. Okay, um, the. Uh, there uh, some pretty interesting studies done with this stuff. Um, let me let me add a blank slide here so I can uh... okay pretty interesting study that looked at uh, ability uh, to produce force, and they basically did it by um, manipulating the amount of stretch and how rapidly that stretch was applied. So in this case, what they did is they had um, right, they had the person move downward into this um, counter movement, or counter position and they, they made sure that there was a certain hip, knee, and ankle angle. Okay. So at first they did it in a static fashion where they had them move down into that position, hold that position for several seconds, and then jump. Okay? So they were measuring vertical jump. Then Actually, I probably should have not put that there. Then they had them move down And and more in a a traditional vertical jump. They had to move down quickly and then immediately jump. Okay? But they made sure that they went right to the same hip, knee, and ankle angle. So they didn't go down any further. They didn't go down less further. They went down to the same position and then immediately jumped. And what they found is their vertical jump was higher. Then what he did is he had them stand on a box, step off the box, Which then moved them down into this vertical, or into this uh, counter movement position. So they stepped off, down, and then vertical jump. And they found out that doing that, you get a higher force production. Okay. So you, you, it's it's not just how much stretch, because they were stretching the same as this one over here. It's the rapid application of that stretch that then turns around and, and allows you to produce more force. What's the carryover to? the off the box to uh, after a few weeks of training jumping on the ground say again um, what's the carryover of the power the increase I mean are you actually getting a high hypertrophy effect out of this or is it just increased power from the it's it's, it's more increase in power um, because the the total amount of work uh, and overload work uh, with these type of workouts is not real high you know if you compare it to the amount of you know, poundage lifted with um, uh, weightlifting activity. So the total volume of work, you know, if you really want muscles to hypertrophy and get big, you expose them to lots and lots of training volume, okay? So in this case, it's more of a rapid application of power. So you're producing lots of force, but you're doing it really quickly. Yeah, is your, say, is your vertical uh, jump, is it going to increase? Yes. If you're just just doing training this way? Um... If if you took two people and had them train the same and had one person add this type of training in, chances are they would improve their vertical leap higher than somebody who was not doing this type of training. Okay, Um, and and it's difficult because you can you can try to do and there's a variety. This is just one example of a plyometric type of exercise. These types of box jumps. Um, There's a variety of different other ones um, involving. Upper body muscle groups, etc. That you can do, that can maybe try to mimic certain sports, you know, activities that might help strengthen power. Okay. Um, so now there's a limit. It seems like it's roughly in the range of about one meter. Okay. How far is one, how How far is one meter? Roughly three feet. Okay. Because Okay. if the box gets too high <laughs> all right, if the box gets too high when you hit the ground you wind up expending too much of your energy to keep yourself from ramming into the ground to then be able to turn that momentum around a- and send it in the other direction Okay. now you can probably go higher than a meter for you know, if somebody's a seven foot basketball player, but it's roughly within that range for people. So, in fact, this guy um, here, that's probably, you know, pretty close to, you know, this is probably pretty close to maximum height for him. You can see there's even with him, there's a little bit of a pause before he goes in the other direction. So, for this particular athlete who's not real tall, in a, even a slightly smaller box would probably be more effective okay alright so this is also sometimes referred to as the dang it, do it again um, I'll, I'll get it one of these days okay This is also referred to as the stretch-shortening cycle, SSC, Okay, where what you're doing is you're stretching a muscle or a muscle group slightly and rapidly right before you ask it to produce force, and that enhances our ability to produce force with that particular muscle or muscle group. Okay, stretch shortening cycle, plyometrics. Okay. Um, I'm kind of skip through this. These are just different uh, uh, proprioceptors. These are receptors found either in the joints or in muscle themselves that feed back and give information back to the central nervous system. Um, oh, I forgot my... Uh, uh, one of my examples of our, our uh, um, actually a couple of examples of our, our uh, um, uh, muscle spindles. Who's, uh, anybody bring a textbook or have heavy, heavy textbook? Let me have that. Oh, look at that. Yeah, do you have a, a textbook as well? Somebody else got a book it. with them? I haven't binder. it. Let me borrow that one? Okay, let me bore you for a second. Come on up up here. So you can tell exercise physiology is more important because our book is thicker. (laughs) Okay, take your left arm, stick it out like this, hold it 90 degree, okay? I want you to just hold this textbook like that. Okay, close your eyes. I want you to just focus on uh, holding this book uh, with your uh, left arm, your elbow at a 90 degree angle. All right, so what kind of uh, force or muscle action is his uh, bicep doing right now isometric. isometric right so is his bicep producing force yeah so uh, didn't work put it back on there close your eyes ah okay you see it that, okay go ahead thank you that's who's this this one that's his right that was yours Okay, so it didn't work the first time because I usually try to surprise people that it slid off, but you could even see it, still see it the second time. Okay, so his bicep was producing a certain amount of force and the muscle was a certain length. When I rapidly applied that additional force, what's the first thing that happened? Arm went down like this, okay, because of the additional external force. So what happened to the length of the bicep? It Stretched, uh, it, okay, it increased the length. So if that increased the length of the bicep, uh, that stimulated muscle spindles, right? Because the muscle stretched. And I kind of dropped it on there so it stretched quickly. So that sends a reflex to the spine and right back out to the bicep muscle to do what? Contract. Contract. And what did the arm do? It came up. Did it come right back exactly the same position? Did you notice what it did? He overshot a little bit, right? So what happens to the length of the bicep? Shortens. What about stimula- stimulation to the spindles? If it's shorter than it was before, what happened to the stimulation of the spindles? Less? So what about that reflex signal? Not so much. So then what did the arm do? Drop down a little bit. Okay? And so you get that sort of oscillation like that, and it's a rapid action. It's a rapid feedback from what's going on in the muscle to tell that muscle how to modulate or or to carefully change the amount of force to meet the force requirement. Okay? Uh, another example that I see all the time in class is, uh, you know, it's, it's like one he he's been talking for an hour or for 59 minutes, and it's after lunch, and I start looking around and I see people going like this, and then pretty soon, they, you know, their head starts to drop like this, and then all of a sudden it's, ugh! Okay? Um, there's, a, there's a technical term for that, it's called a nap jerk. <laughs> right? And so so what's happening? Stretch. As you start to fall asleep and relax, the weight of your head causes your head to fall forward. What happens to these muscles back here? Stretch. Neuromuscular reflex causes those muscles to contract and snaps your head back up. Okay? So some fun examples of our muscle spindles and neuromuscular reflex. Okay. Um. (laughs) All right, we also have these Golgi tendon organs. Make sure before I do this, um. I think I'm right. Yeah, okay. All right, we've also got these Golgi tendon organs. Instead of being sensitive to stretch, these Golgi tendon organs are sensitive to force. Okay, they are sensitive to force. Instead of finding them more in the belly of the muscle, we tend to find them out at the ends of the muscle where the muscle fibers um, interact with the tendon fibers, Okay, that uh, uh, musculotendinous junction. Okay? So these Golgi tendon organs tend to be found more in that, that area between the tendon and the muscle, and they are sensitive to force. They also have a neuromuscular reflex that goes back to the same muscle, except it is exactly opposite, because its neuromuscular reflex is relaxation. Okay? Relaxation. So, if there is an amount of force that's being produced that is high enough to stimulate these Golgi tendon organs, it sends a signal back to the central nervous system, That sends a signal back to that same muscle that tells it to relax. Okay? Well, why on earth would we have. Yeah, why would we we have that? Most likely to prevent injury. Is it possible for a muscle to produce enough force for it to injure itself? Is it possible for a muscle to produce enough force to injure a tendon? Is it possible for a muscle to produce enough force to injure the bone that the tendon's connected to? Yes. Okay. So in this case I thought these the, these Golgi tendon organs are, have some sort of protective <laughs> function in that when the force production gets so high that it stimulates these it in turn causes this muscle to relax. So we're not, we're not talking about like weight we're talking about like really high yeah. force. To yes. And, and, and that's one of the things that's really interesting. And in fact there is some controversy about this but there's obviously some inhibition or remodeling that occurs with these things in response to Weight training, as an example, because um, if that were the case, anytime you started to lift weights and you got you know near a maximum lift, you if you uh, evoked the stimulation of these Golgi tendon organs, you would drop the weight every time. Okay, so obviously, as you get stronger and are able to produce more force, lift more weight, there is some remodeling or resetting of these Golgi tendon organs. Okay, um, all right. Uh, this is just a flow chart that kind of looks at at, at this um, again like I said mo- motor control is not really my my. Uh, the, 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 in fact I don't think it's required for you all anymore but one of the courses that you can take as a prereq is the motor learning class motor learning. Some, some of you still have to take it some of you don't depending on when you declared exercise science as your major but um, motor learning if you're yeah thanks right Okay, the motor learning class. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, how we acquire and, and improve different motor skills, uh, that's a good class to learn or a good class to take. And so basically that's what this is about. It's just um, this idea of how the brain and the central nervous system creates a, uh, a movement plan and sends the, the um, action potential to the muscle. Um, I'm a physiologist, so I'm more interested in the muscle than... <laughs> than the other stuff, so. Okay. Um, yeah, so basically, I mean, what we've been talking about here, when we first start talking, we're, we, we talk about the action potential coming from the brain to the muscle. And, and that's an efferent signal. That's, that's action potential. And it's an efferent neuron. So that's carrying a signal from the brain to the muscle. But these muscle spindles and these Golgi tendon organs, as an example, um, they are sensory and they send signals. These are afferent and those send signals from the muscle back to the central nervous system. Okay, And the whole point is to give the central nervous system some feedback, so that it knows, uh, gets some information about what's going on in the muscle, in order to help that muscle modulate or change the amount of force that it produces. Okay, we talked last time. I think about I, I started mentioning the um, the study uh, that one of our doctoral students did, where they were looking at how people reacted or or their movement pattern when they lifted boxes of different weights. And it's essentially the same sort of response that we saw with this little example because people see an object and based on their previous experience, they're they're sort of guesstimating how heavy it weighs or how how heavy it is and how much force they're going to have to produce to lift it. And so when they squat down to pick up the box and they start lifting it, and it's heavier than they think, you can literally see them just pause very briefly and then they start to apply more force. Okay, Because the, the, the feedback that's coming to them is they're not getting as much stretch and they're not producing enough force to get the movement that's required. Uh, conversely, if it's much lighter than they think, they pick it up and it starts moving rapidly, then they get the feedback from the movement that they don't need to produce as much force and they don't have to recruit as many motor units and, and, uh, to do the activity, okay? So there's both you know and, and so this is a repeated pattern that happens very rapidly of action potentials going to the muscle feedback from the muscle back to the central nervous system and more action potentials back to modulate or balance our the amount of force that we produce okay all right, we are a little bit behind because we're supposed to be doing, uh, I looked at the schedule today, we're supposed to be doing uh, delayed onset muscle soreness, but we'll catch up with that pretty quickly on Tuesday, all right? I think it's Thursday, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it? Is it Tuesday? Okay, then it's Tuesday. Is there anything you need to take attention Yes. Yes. I, I would, I would m- it would be advisable to know excitation-contraction coupling in order and in detail. Excitation. Contraction coupling, those, those steps of force production by the muscle.